It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Apparently now, my detractors are calling me a cult leader. If you are listening to this broadcast, email me and I will send you some Kool-Aid. It has to be digital Kool-Aid, though, because otherwise it would get really expensive. Because I am the most poverty-stricken cult leader on the planet. Oh, man. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. Thank you for tuning in. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. What do we do here at Fighting for the Faith? Well, we dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to take what people are saying... And compare it to the Word of God. Now, some of those people happen to be very popular, well-known evangelical authors, church leaders, pastors. Others are not so well-known church leaders and pastors. But nonetheless, what we do is we take what people say, if they're claiming to be speaking for God, and compare what they say to God's Word. Sometimes it turns out to be just great stuff. Other times it leaves us scratching our head going, huh? (laughs) And we work from the premise that anybody who ascends to a Christian pulpit is biblically bound by the duties of a pastor, as outlined in the pastoral epistles. uh, Timothy comes to mind. uh, It was a first or second Timothy chapter four doing this from memory. But anyway, Paul says, in view of Christ's coming, I command you i tell you to preach the word you've heard of it the word the word not just any old word okay for instance there's a lot of truth running around out there and a lot of the truth that's running around there actually is the truth for instance okay e equals mc squared do i have a hallelujah anyone out there want to say hallelujah e equals mc squared that's right hallelujah praise the lord it's true uh, who cares if e equals mc squared is true? That's really not the uh, <clears throat> the truth that we're supposed to be proclaiming in a church. We're not supposed to be reading the words of Einstein, even though uh, the e equals mc squared is true. Um, let me give you another truth. Another truth. Barack Obama is currently the president of the United States. Do I hear an amen out there? That's the truth, right? We can be preaching the truth, right? That's the truth. And people would say, okay, <laughs> so, or thanks for reminding me, or whatever your per- persuasion is. There, but see, that's a, I've stated the truth, have I not? Yeah, I have. Barack Obama currently is the president of the United States, and E equals MC squared. By the way, did you know 2 plus 2 equals 4? Do I have a hallelujah, an amen out there for 2 plus 2 equals 4? Uh, no? Okay. I, I hear crickets chirping out there. What's the point? Well, the point is is that it's not that we're called to proclaim the truth in church. We're called to proclaim a particular truth. The truth that's found in the Word of God and all of Scripture from beginning to end is about Jesus Christ. God in human flesh come to earth to rescue humanity, to die as our substitute on the cross, being punished for our sins by God the Father, drinking full the cup of wrath 
being poured out on him is what we deserved. And he offers us this simple, simple truth. Repent and believe this good news. Believe the good news and you will be saved. That's the truth that we're called to proclaim in church. Not E equals MC squared. Not that, you know, stuff that will help you at jeopardy. But a very specific truth. The truth of Jesus Christ. The Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's the stuff that we are to say amen to at church. So what, what do we do here? We compare what people are saying in church to the word of God. Why do we do that? Well, because there's a whole lot of people out there who are rethinking, reimagining, reinventing, retooling the church you know, to make it more relevant, more palatable, to draw bigger crowds and bigger numbers. And they claim that they can do this without compromising the truth of the Bible. Well, we test that claim to see if that's actually true. And we do a lot of sermon reviews here, and i got to tell you, there's a bunch of these purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive guys who uh, haven't made good on their claim, or their promise, that they can make Christianity relevant without compromising the truth. So what do we do? We take what they say, compare it to the Word of God, and the goal of this exercise is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, to help you to test what people say against the word of God. And I am not even close to immune from this little exercise. In fact, I encourage you strongly. Don't take my word for nothing. Take what I say, compare it to God's word. And where I am not in alignment, in accord with the truth of God's word, don't believe me. In fact, if that happens, send me an email. Send me an email. Where I'm wrong, I will repent. I've done it before. I'll do it again. I, I predict. And I'm not even prophetic. In fact, <laughs> I have no gift of seeing into the future that I'm aware of. And uh, I can predict. And I'm pretty darn certain that uh, I'm, I'm going to be right on this one. There's going to be a time, could even be soon, where I'm going to have to say, whoops, yep, I thought I was speaking the truth. And it turns out upon further review... I was not teaching what was in accord with God's word. And when more evidence came to light, it became clear that I needed to repent and believe what God's word teaches on this matter and that I was not correct. I've done it before. I'll do it again. And that's our job as Christians, to be have our minds transformed by the word of God. So we need to be in God's word, and we need to compare what people are saying to God's word. Great exercise. All right, got a good program lined up today. We are going to be doing some listener email. Oh, man, I got some funny emails today. Uh, we're going to be doing a news story about a San Francisco woman who could potentially become the first lesbian minister uh, for the Presbyterian Church USA. Don't want to bet against that one. We'll be doing some myth busting today. Now, I wanted to use the Mythbusters music, but I couldn't find a clean soundtrack for Mythbusters, so I won't be doing any Mythbusters music. And the myth we're going to be busting is this ridiculous idea that's floating around theological seminaries in the internet out there 
that the penal substitutionary atonement is, is a late development in the church. And in fact, the, the, the church went for 1,500 years without the penal substitutionary atonement, and it's just one of the many valid theories there are out there regarding what Christ was doing on the cross. And it's a latecomer to boot. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> in, in fact, if you if you claim that penal substitutionary atonement wasn't taught for the first 1,500 years of church history, um, uh, you'd be lying like a rug. It, 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 so, and so here, here's a fun thing. Okay, Now, when it comes to this kind of thing, there are some people who just pass along things that they've been told. I had a college professor. He said such and such. I believed him because, well, he was a college professor. And it turns out that what he told me wasn't true. And I didn't mean to pass along something that wasn't true. But, you know, uh, I based it upon this person and what he said. And as a result of it, it turns out he was wrong. Therefore, I was wrong. Now, there's those people who do that. Okay. Yeah. I still get emails Oh, to this day from people who claim that Procter and Gamble, you know, if you get a, go grab a, if you have Crest as the toothpaste that you use, the, the Procter and Gamble logo, they, I get emails from people saying Procter and Gamble engages in satanic rituals, and this and this this symbol is, is satanic. Yeah. Now, now I understand the people who send me these emails aren't intentionally saying something that's false about Procter and Gamble. They received an email or heard from somebody that they trusted, they believed them, and they passed the information on. That's one thing. You mistakenly pass along information. But then there's those people out there who know better. They know the truth, they reject the truth, and they substitute it with their own reality. Okay, them people is the most dangerous. You got to be careful of that. Now, the folks out there that are passing along this myth that penal substitutionary atonement is a latecomer in Christian history, they they fall into two camps. There, the group there's a group of people just passing the information along because they got it from somebody they trusted, and it turns out they're passing along misinformation, not knowingly, not maliciously. Uh, but nonetheless, the information they're passing along is not true. And then there's those who have an axe to grind, who don't like this idea that God punishes sin and that he can be wrathful. Don't want that God. So what are we going to do? We're going to a priori eliminate any possibility that God is that way, because after all, God is love. And love never would be wrathful, and love never punishes like that. And, you know, and this idea that God would punish and be wrathful, and it just, that's not the God I believe in. <laughs> Tito, get me a tissue. <clears throat> Those folks, their problem is that they begin with their idea about God, and they reject what God's word says about God. And they have an axe to grind against penal substitutionary atonement because it reveals a God that they don't believe in. Because the God they believe in is not the God of the Bible. The God they believe in is an idol that they've created for themselves. And they ignore one attribute about God and completely trump up another attribute about God. Just remember, half-truth is a whole lie. Them people... Them, the, them's the ones you got to be looking out for, okay?
So anyway, we're going to be doing some myth busting today, and I've got bad news for the second group of people that I just described. It's not true. It's a myth that penal substitutionary atonement is a late development in Christian history. Oh, no, 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 no. Can't wait to do this segment. It'll be fun. And then, I don't know if you know this, but tomorrow on ABC there's a big debate on whether or not Satan exists. And we'll be reading a news story regarding that. Of course, I'll have to TiVo that and um, (laughs) play the relevant segments. And that news story is going to lead us into a discussion of a gentleman by the name of Bishop Carlton Pearson. We'll be playing something that, some things that Carlton Pearson has said, as well as do a re- sermon review from Carlton, Bishop Carlton Pearson. He's uh, got a church there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we'll be doing a sermon review called New Visions and Versions of God. That's right. That's the name of the sermon, New Visions and New Versions of God. Now, Carlton Pearson kind of falls into a different category of people that we review here at Fighting for the Faith. Many times we review sermons from people who are Orthodox Christians who are just not doing their job as pastors and passing along the truth. Carlton Pearson is not that flavor of bird. No. (laughs) I, I think it's safe to say that Carlton Pearson has invented his own religion and probably is better described as a real cult leader. Because his stuff ain't even close to Orthodox Christianity, and he wears the heretic badge rather proudly. And uh, we'll we'll be doing a a sermon review of him today, so stay tuned. Grab Grab a beverage, or if you're commuting, I hope that you have a big, tall glass of coffee or a cup of coffee, if that's what you're, you know, if that's your thing. If not, tea or whatever, but grab a beverage, make yourself comfortable, settle in. It's going to be a good program. All right, we're going to dive right into listener email first. <clears throat> Michael Ritzman. <clears throat> By the way, Michael Ritzman is an accountant. Okay, now I don't know if you know this. I've said it before, but accountants practice a black art, and so he's on my uh, he's on my radar of people to watch. <laughs> he has emailed me, dear Chris Twister Rosebro. Oh boy, now what's with the Twister thing? Well, if you caught up on your podcast, listening. Uh, the other day, uh, they were firing up the tornado sirens here in Indiana, you know, getting ready for the <laughs> tornado season. Anyway, Michael Ritzman, the twisted accountant, writes, he says, as, as a recent transplant to Indiana, originally from the Pacific Northwest, I, too, grappled with the prospect of imminent death from above. That's a great way of describing a tornado. He says, in fact, during my first two years in the Midwest, I had dreams of tornadoes at least... Once a week. Don't worry, they go away eventually. Thanks. That's just so comforting. He says, look at it Look at it as a test of faith. Examine yourself. Are you ready to meet God if a ravaging storm carves a trench through your living room? <laughs> this is so comforting, Michael. He says, no, really, at any moment you could, you, you could be taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, only instead of a flaming chariot in the sky, it will be a f- flying Chevrolet through the front, win- front window of your house. Is that helpful? Oh, yeah, that's just really... <laughs> I feel so much better now, Michael. Whew! Yeah, I... Uh, this will cure my insomnia. That's... Thanks. That's just great. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> From Dave. Dave writes, he says, Chris, I'm listening to a review of the Give Up Carbon for Lent fad. <laughs> Now, this is a great email. He says, my wife and I have realized that this is self-justification in high gear. 
the I recycle, therefore I am righteous, righteous mindset. To hear people talk about their own green efforts, they sound remarkably self-righteous. Hmm, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector comes to mind. Now, this is brilliant. Dave has rewritten the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector using eco-speak. He says, the Pharisee speaking, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, barbecuers, conventional light bulb users, tree trimmers, or like this non-recycler, non-recycler, recycler, er, recycle, er. I compost twice a week. I recycle everything that I get. I think this is great. He says also, John 21, 9 says that Jesus <laughs> lit a charcoal fire to cook breakfast for his disciples. That's true. So, hmm, how long was the fire burning? How big was the footprint? I wonder. That's right. <laughs> it's true. After Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he meets the disciples at the Sea of Galilee, and he's got a charcoal bi- he's got a charcoal fire going. Oh no, Jesus left a carbon footprint global warming began in the first century he says so if i follow the what would jesus do philosophy i can eat meat i consider fish to be a meat and light charcoal fires wahoo freedom (laughs) great email dave okay all right a little bit more of a serious question but it deals with kind of an interesting topic email from tim and tim writes he says um i was recently asked a question and i was not a hundred percent sure how to answer it There is a statement question when it comes to false teaching, and and it says the statement goes like this. It is unproductive at best and uh, sinful at worst to mock them. Okay, that's the statement. It says, what are your thoughts on this, knowing that you and your program do make fun of false teachings often? That's right. We do make fun of false teachings often. Now, the statement that you've you've given here regarding mocking false teaching, saying that it's unproductive at best and sinful at worst. Okay, now... Many times, got to understand, I do try to mock what people are saying, and there and there are times when, quite frankly, I'm mocking the person. Now, mocking, okay, can be unproductive and it can be sinful. It isn't always, okay? And I'm going to back this up biblically. And what it comes down to is what are you trying to accomplish? That really is a good question to ask yourself before you engage in said behavior. Now, if your goal is to call somebody to repentance and faith in the gospel, then mocking them is generally not a good way of keeping them engaged in the conversation. Okay? Now, if you've written the person off, and what your real goal is, is to warn people about what's out there and to teach them to not be afraid of it, and to use memorable ways of showing and demonstrating that what is being said is not true, and mocking being one of them, then that's that. I think that can be productive. Okay, now let's take a look at a biblical example here. Okay, First Kings chapter eighteen, starting at verse twenty, Elijah on Mount Carmel. This is right before that uh, incident. Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God or Baal is God, follow him. So the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. 
but the Baal's prophets, or Baal's prophets, are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of Yahweh. And the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, well, that's well spoken. Yeah, that's a great idea. So then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God and put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them by saying, Cry louder! He is a god! Either he's musing or maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself. Or, or is he on a journey? Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Shout louder! Okay, now, okay, so a priori, a priori, coming back to Tim's question, a priori, we can't rule mocking out as something that isn't productive. Again, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. Okay, now notice there obviously is a biblical case that can be made for mocking having its rightful place. And who was Baal mocking? False teachers false prophets, idolaters. And how did it play out? Now, obviously, he wasn't interested in converting the prophets of Baal. They all died at the end of the day. But there were other people there. All of Israel was there. This was a showdown. And believe me when I tell you that the people who were there that day, who saw the one true God answer by fire, saw the prophets of Baal being slaughtered afterwards. When they went home and discussed it and reran the videotape in their mind, they also remembered Elijah bravely, confidently mocking people and a false god. It all reinforced the fact that Baal isn't real. Sometimes it is the right thing to do to mock false doctrine, false statements, and show things for what it really is, utter foolishness. Those who are following after false doctrine, setting up their own religions and proposing their own teachings and thinking what they have to teach is more important than God's word. It's utter foolishness and making fun of it does have a way of memorably teaching people what the truth is and showing how come something else is wrong. So it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Mocking can actually be very, 
productive. And it can also be sinful. So you got to be careful. Got to be careful when you do it. All right. <clears throat> Moving on to the news here before the break. Got a news story here from the uh, Christian Post. San Francisco woman looks to become Presbyterian Church USA's first lesbian minister. <sighs> Sadly, there are some that would call that progress. Um, <clears throat> this is from Eric Young from the Christian Post. He writes, an openly gay woman in San Francisco is attempting for a third time to become ordained within the Presbyterian Church USA, which is the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. Uh huh. Yeah. By the way, Presbyterian Church USA, for the most part, you're talking about liberal, liberal, progressive. That's really a bad term. That's their term. Who are progressive Christians? Um, liberal Christians. And at that point, you have to question whether or not they're even Christian. <sighs> Forget the fact that God's word outright says that this is a sin and an abomination. We're, we're going to put people in the pulpit that are unrepentant homosexuals. Just great. Anyway, an openly gay woman in San Francisco is attempting for a third time to become ordained within the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination within the United States. Lisa Largis, a deacon at Noel Valley Ministry Presbyterian Church in San Francisco, has been blocked from ordination for more than 20 years. Well, what do they say? Three's a charm because uh, I also read another story. I had to find that where it says that the Presbyterian Church USA is trying to eliminate the anti-homosexual language from their <clears throat> from their confessions of faith. Anyway, so, uh, <clears throat> okay, so she's been blocked for almost 20 years. Uh and may get blocked again should the Synod of the Pacific's Permanent Judicial Commission rule that the San Francisco Presbytery uh, was wrong in deciding that largest could move forward in the ordination process. On January 15th, the San Francisco Presbytery deemed largest ready for examination by a narrow 167 to 51 vote. Uh, did God get to vote on that? You know, because God's words, she got, she's two strikes against her here. Woman? Uh, there is no such thing as a female pastor biblically, and second is she's um, unrepentantly homosexual. <clears throat> anyway, so despite the PCUSA's ban on clergy that do not practice fidelity within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman or chastity in singleness, under a new controversial policy adopted by the PCUSA's 217th General Assembly in 2006, ordaining bodies were given greater leeway. In ordinate, in ord, to ordain candidates who declare conscientious objections to specific Presbyterian teachings as long as the ordaining, ordaining body does not consider them essentials of church belief. Oh, okay. So the way I, we should interpret this here is, is that Lisa Largest um, <clears throat> is a conscientious objector to the ban on openly gay clergy, uh, and therefore we could just brush that aside because technically that's not an essential of the Christian faith. <sighs> in her writing, in a written objection, largest stated that she would not concur with the church's requirement that she be married to a man to be and or be chased in order to become a minister. She called the provision a mar on the church and a stumbling block to its mission. 
You see, we would be reaching openly homosexual people if we would just get rid of this offensive doctrine that says that homosexuality is a sin. You see, the church has egg on its face by daring to call homosexuality a sin. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Anyway, so, okay, so she called the provision a mar on the church and a stumbling block to its mission and said it did not express essentials of Presbyterian faith, according to the PCUSA's news service. On Friday, Largest, who was legally blind, appeared during a meeting uh, in Oakland of the Synod of the Pacific's Permanent Judicial Commission to ask church officials to let her application proceed. And the, the ruling is expected. Like, now, we should... Wonder what happened. I'll keep you posted. I'll, I'll look for the decision to see what uh, happened there. But I mean, it's it's due any second now, and if it hasn't already come down from them, anyway, we're up on our first break. When we get back, we're gonna do some myth busting regarding penal substitution, and uh, talk about ABC's upcoming debate regarding whether or not Satan exists. This is gonna be oh so fun. So uh, stay tuned. Got a lot of good stuff coming. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard so far, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back. sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. They don't know their tender sins. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Avast there, Pirate Christian Radio listener. Have you visited the Pirate Christian Radio store yet? This is a place where you can stock up on Pirate Christian Radio gear. Don't 
be a stowaway on our ship. You can let your friends and neighbors know that you are a proud member of our crew by buying one of our Pirate Christian Radio t-shirts or coffee mugs. The best part is that all the proceeds help to keep our ship afloat so that we can take people's false doctrine and share the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Log on to piratechristianradio.com, click on the store link from our homepage, and do it today. You'll be glad that you did. listening to Fighting for the Faith here on Pirate Christian Radio. <laughs> I want to remind you that uh, Fighting for the Faith, uh, we be listener supported, which basically means this. We depend upon you, our listeners, in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you. So <clears throat> would you partner with us? We would really appreciate it if you would partner with us because it helps us to pay our bills and uh, make it so that uh, from time to time we can eat food, which I don't really need a lot of because I'm overweight, but that's a different story. Any- <laughs> Sorry. If you would like to support us, you could do so by going to fightingforthefaith.com. That's fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the donate button. There's plenty of donate buttons there on the homepage. In fact, there's a donate button for every day that we do a, a podcast. Or if you would like to do it the more traditional way, the way you would do that is you would go to, uh, you would actually write your check, make it payable to Fighting for the Faith, send it to uh, Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana 46038. That's Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana. All right, we're going to be doing some myth busting. Myth busting. Yeah, yeah. And believe it or not, I was able to find some myth busters music. So here's our myth busting uh, theme music for the segment. That's right. Today on MythBusters, we're going to be looking at the myth that penal substitution. It's a late development doctrinally in the Christian church and wasn't around for the first 1,500 years of Christian history. No, that's right. That's the myth that we're going to be busting here. <laughs> right on. Okay. Yeah, that, that was somewhat decent myth-busting music. So uh, is the penal substitution, uh, the, the doctrine of penal substitution... Something that developed really late, or <clears throat> has it been around since the beginning of the Christian church? The answer to the question is, it's been around since the beginning of the Christian church. And why would that be? I know, because it's biblical. <laughs> you know, this whole idea that Jesus Christ died for our sins is going to leave a lot of people going, I wonder what that means. Jesus died for my sins. What, what do you mean by that? Funny enough, the Bible actually has an answer. And if you, you can look at other passages of Scripture, which teach, guess, get this, that Jesus Christ was being punished in our place for our sins. Most notably, Isaiah 53. Go back and listen to that sermon. 
by the way, we just we just did that. But there's there's some detractors out there, people who are absolutely dead set against this idea that God would dare to be so ugly and politically incorrect to to punish sins and be wrathful. I don't like that God. <laughs> and so they've they've created a myth. It's an urban legend. And it's an urban legend running like wildfire through emergent circles, through postmodern circles, and it's bleeding into just everyday mainstream evangelical thought. People say, hey, well, you know, if, if penal substitution wasn't taught during the first 1,500 years of church history, then, then why would you insist that anyone believe it? I mean, it, it's just one of the many valid theories regarding the, uh, what Jesus was doing on the cross and the atonement. So, I mean, take it or leave it. I mean, if that's the one you prefer, then go for it. But, you know, you, don't have, you shouldn't have to – you don't want to elevate it to, to, to the point where it's actually biblical doctrine. Well, the problem is, is that <clears> – <throat> A little examination of church history and the writings of the anti-Nicene and even post-Nicene church fathers yields a completely different scenario than the one being put out by the post-modern people out there who are attacking and undermining, belittling, and demeaning penal substitution. And so, <clears throat> did a little bit of research. Wonderful, by the way. By the way, the book "Pierced for Our Transgressions." That's we're going to make that our. We're, we're in the process of trying to make that Pirate Christian Radio's book of the month for April. I haven't quite worked out the deal on that one yet, but it's a fantastic, an amazing book. And they've got a whole section in that book covering what was written by the church fathers regarding penal substitution. And so, let, let me see here. We, we're going to be looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, no less than ten, and maybe even more than that, uh, church fathers, early church fathers, who, get this, taught penal substitution. Now, believe it or not, there's some people out there who, even after you show them this evidence, they're going to say, well, it wasn't a fully developed doctrine of penal substitution, so it doesn't count. Uh, actually, it does. It, it does, because if they teach it in essence, then they were teaching penal substitution. We start off with Justin Martyr, who, by the way, uh, church history tells us he lived based from somewhere around 100 A.D. to 165 A.D., and in his, in his work entitled Dialogue with Tromfo. Dialogue with Trump, uh, Trifo, sorry, Trifo. Uh, we read this in his chapter entitled, Christ took upon himself the curse due to us. Uh, that's a pretty promising headline there, isn't it? Uh, for this chapter, Christ took upon himself the curse due to us is the name of the chapter heading. We read these words. For the whole human race was found to be under a curse. For it is written in the law of Moses, curses everyone that continueth not and all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. That's from Deuteronomy 27, 26, by the way, if you're taking notes. Uh, Justin Martyr continues, And no one has accurately done all, nor will you venture to deny this, but some more and some less than others have obscured the ordinances enjoined. And that's a polite way of saying um, not everybody keeps the law. Okay, that would be you and me, and that's kind of the problem that we all suffer from. We continue. <clears throat> But if those who are under the law appear to be under a curse for not having observed all the requirements, 
How much more shall all the nations appear to be under a curse who practice idolatry, who seduce youths and commit other crimes? Here's the important part. If then the father of all wished his Christ Christ for the whole human family to take upon him the curse of all, knowing that after he had been crucified and was dead, he would raise him up. Why do you argue about him who submitted to suffer these things according to the Father's will as if he were accursed, and do not rather bewail yourselves? For although his Father caused him to suffer these things in behalf of the human family, yet you do not commit the deed as in obedience to the will of God. So here we have Justin Martyr literally saying that Christ became a curse for us, and that uh, the Father caused him to suffer all these things on behalf of the human family. The the correct way of describing what Justin Martyr is talking about here would be, get this, penal substitution. So Justin Martyr taught the heart and soul of penal substitution. We read from Eusebius of Caesarea in his work entitled The Proof of the Gospel. By the way, Eusebius of Caesarea lived from 275 to 339. We read, so it is said, and the Lord hath laid upon him our iniquities, and he bears our sins. Thus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world became a curse on our behalf. Whom, though he knew no sin, God made sin for our sake, giving him as redemption for all that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He quotes Second Corinthians 5.21. He says, and how can he make our sins his own and be said to bear our iniquities except by being regarded as his body, according to the apostles who says, now ye are the body of Christ and and, and severally members. And by the rule that if one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. So when the many members suffer and sin, he too, by the laws of sympathy, takes into himself the labors of the suffering members and makes it our sickness. His and suffers our woes and labors by the laws of love. And here's the important part. And the Lamb of God not only did this, but was punished or chastised on our behalf and suffered a penalty he did not owe, but which we owed because of the multitude of our sins. And so he became the cause of the forgiveness of our sins because he received death for us and transferred to himself the scourging, the insults, and the dishonor which were due to us and drew upon himself the appointed curse being made a curse for us. Well, let's see. Okay, so Justin Martyr between 100 and 165, Eusebius of Caesarea, 275 to 239, both of them teaching penal substitution, Christ being punished as our substitute. Hilary of Pointiers writes in his homily on Psalm 53, For next there follows, I will sacrifice unto thee freely the sacrifices of the law which consisted of whole burnt offerings and oblations of goats and of bulls, did not involve an expression of free will because the sentence of a curse was pronounced on all who broke the law. Whoever failed the sacrifice laid himself upon open to the curse, and it was always necessary to go through the whole sacrificial action because the action of the curse of, of the commandment forbade any trifling with the obligation of the offering. It was from this curse 
that our Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us when, as the apostles say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Thus he, that's Christ, offered himself to the death to the death of the accursed, that he might break the curse of the law, offering himself voluntarily a victim to God the Father, in order that by means of voluntary victim, the curse which attended to the discontinuance of the regular victim might be removed. Uh, by the way, um, Hillary Poitiers, between 300 and 368, was teaching the doctrine of penal substitution. Jesus being punished as our substitute on the cross for our sins. Athanasius of Alexandria, in his wonderful work entitled On the Incarnation, that is a great book, by the way. I'm going to have to put that in the uh, Pirate Christian Radio store because that just fantastic book. If, if, uh, it's important to read old books, and this is one of those old books you ought to read. Um, I, I'm sorry, I digress. <clears throat> Athanasius, in his work entitled On the Incarnation, writes in section 8, he says, Thus taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he, Jesus, surrendered his body to death in place of us all, and offered it to the Father. He did out of sheer love for us, so that in his death all might die, and the law of death thereby be abolished, because having fulfilled in his body that for which it is appointed, it was therefore voided of its power for men. This he did that he might turn again to incorruption, men who had turned back to corruption, and make them alive through death by the appropriation of his body and by the grace of his resurrection. Thus he would make death to disappear from them as utterly as straw from fire. Section 9, he writes, The word perceived that corruption would not be got rid of otherwise than through death. Yet he himself, as the word being immortal, and the father's son was such as could not die. For this reason, therefore, he assumed a body capable of death in order that it, through belonging to the word who is above all, might become a in dying a sufficient exchange for all." and itself remaining incorruptible through his indwelling might thereafter put an end to corruption for all others as well by the grace of the resurrection. It was by surrendering to death the body which he had taken as an offering and sacrifice free from sin and stain that he forthwith abolished death for his human brethren by the offering of the equivalent. That would be Athanasius of Alexandria from the, early, from the 4th century teaching, guess what, penal substitution. We read from uh, Gregory Nazianzus. Man, that's a tough name. Nazianzus. Nazianzus. Not very familiar with this word. Gregory of Nazianzus, between 300 and 390 AD, wrote in his uh, the fourth theological oration, he says, now take in the next place the the subjection by which you subject the Son to the Father. What you say is he now... Is he not now subject, or must he, if he is God, be subject to God? Are you fashioning your argument as if it concerns some robber or some hostile deity? But look at it in this manner, that for uh, that as for my sake he was called a curse, who destroyed my curse and sin, who takes away the sin of the world and became a new Adam to take the place of the old, just so he makes my disobedience his own as 
head of the whole body, as long then as I am disobedient and rebellious, both by denial of God and by my passion, so long as Christ also is called disobedient on my account. There we go. Gregory of Nazianzus, I'm messing that up, teaching penal substitution. That would be uh, between 330 and 390 AD. We move on to Ambrose of Milan. In his work entitled Flight from the World, he writes, So then Jesus took, uh, took flesh that he might destroy the curse of sinful flesh, and he became for us a curse. That a blessing might overwhelm a curse, uprightness might overwhelm sin, forgiveness might overwhelm the sentence, and life might overwhelm death. He also took upon uh, took up death that the sentence might be fulfilled and satisfaction might be given for the judgment, the curse placed on sinful flesh even to death. Therefore, nothing was done contrary to God's sentence when the terms of that sentence were fulfilled, for the curse was unto death, but grace is after death." That would be Ambrose of Milan, uh, 4th century, late 4th century, teaching penal substitution. Also in the uh, late 4th century, we have John Chrysostom, fantastic church father, by the way. I think they called him Golden Mouth. This guy could preach. Yeah, if you want to spend some time in the uh, early church fathers and you want something that's really good, John Chrysostom. Can't beat him. Anyway, he says, if, if one that was himself a king beholding a robber, uh, by the way, this is from his homilies on Second Corinthians. If one that was himself a king beholding a robber and malefactor under punishment gave his well-beloved son, his only begotten and, and true to be slain, and transferred the death and the guilt as well from, his, from him to his son who was himself of no such character, that he might both save the condemned man and clear him from his evil reputation. And then, if, having subsequently promoted him to great indignity, he had yet, after thus saving him and advancing him to that glory, unspeakable, been outraged by the person that had received such treatment, would not that man, if he had any sense, have chosen 10,000 deaths rather than appear guilty of so great ingratitude? That would be John Chrysostom from late in the 4th century writing on the and promoting the subject of <clears throat> penal substitution. St. Augustine of Hippo. Augustine, one of the fantastic mag- magnitudinal Magna Carta writers of the Church Fathers. This guy, <laughs> Augustine, knew his stuff. He writes in his, um, in his work against Faustus. If we read cursed of God is every one that hangeth on a tree, the addition of the words of God creates no difficulty, for had not God hated sin in our death, he would not have sent his son to bear and to abolish it. And there is nothing strange in God's cursing what he hates, for his readiness to give us the immortality which will be had at the coming of Christ is in proportion to the compassion with which he hated our death when it hung on the cross at the death of Christ. And if Moses curses everyone that hangs on a tree, it is certainly not because he did not foresee that righteous men could would be crucified, but rather because he foresaw that heretics would deny the death of the Lord to be real and would try to disprove the application of this curse to Christ in order that they might disprove the reality of his death. For if Christ's death was not real, nothing cursed hung on a tree on a cross uh, hung on the cross when he was crucified for the crucifixion cannot have 
been real. Moses cries from the distant past to these heretics, your evasion and denying the reality of the death of Christ is useless. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Not this one or that, but absolutely everyone. What? The Son of God? Yes, assuredly, this is the very thing you object to, and you are so anxious to evade. You will not allow that he was cursed for us because you will not allow that he died for us. Sounds like the uh, <clears throat> postmodern emergent types. Um, anyway, he, he continues, exemption from Adam's curse implies exemption from his death. But as Christ endured death as man and for man, so also son of God as he was ever living in his own righteousness, but dying for our offenses. He submitted as man and for man to bear the curse which accompanies death. And as he died in the flesh, which he took in bearing our punishment, so also while ever blessed in his own righteousness, he was cursed for our offenses in the death which he suffered in bearing our punishment. Apparently Augustine, get this, can you St. Augustine, who, who lived between 354 and 430, that would mean 1,100 years before the development of the doctrine of penal substitution, he was teaching it. I mean, clearly teaching that Christ was punished in our place. <laughs> well, how is that possible? Oh, I know. Because penal substitution is biblical. And what was Augustine doing? He was telling us what the Bible taught, and he was telling it in the face of heretics who were denying it. Huh. Cyril of Alexandria writes in his day, uh, I can't, this is in Latin. <laughs> anyway, Cyril of Alexandria writes, this is the only begotten was made man, bore a body by nature at enmity with death and became flesh so that enduring the death which was hanging over us as the result of our sin, he might abolish sin and further that he might put an end to the accusations of Satan. Okay, that would be Cyril of Alexandria writing between 375 and 444 A.D. And he, they, he was teaching penal substitution. Where did he get this idea from? I thought that penal substitution was a late development in church history. How is it possible for these guys to be teaching penal substitution? Because it's in the Bible. <laughs> these guys learned it from God's word. Okay, Galassius of, um, boy, I can't pronounce that one, Sisychus. After a period of three years, and at the beginning of the fourth, he thus draws near to his bodily suffering. By the way, this is in his book entitled Church History. To his bodily suffering, which he willingly undergoes on our behalf. For the punishment of the cross was due to us. But if we had all been crucified, we would have had no power to deliver ourselves from death. For death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who did not sin. Therefore were many holy men and prophets, many righteous men, but not one of them had the power to ransom himself from the authority of death. But he, the Savior of all, came and received the punishments which were due to us into his sinless flesh, which was of us in place of us and on our behalf. Man, that's... <clears throat> Here we go. Uh, penal substitution in the 5th century. An entire 1,000 years before the supposed development of the doctrine of penal substitution, we have a 5th century church father describing it perfectly. I wonder where he got the idea from. Oh, I know. The Bible. 
And last but not least, because believe me, there is actually more. We read Gregory the Great, 540 to 604, in his work entitled Morals on the Book of Job. Check this out. When the first man was moved by Satan from the Lord, then the Lord was moved against the second man. And so Satan then moved the Lord to the affliction of this latter. When the sin of disobedience brought down the first man from the height of uprightness, for if he had not drawn the first Adam by willful sin into the death of the soul, the second Adam being without sin would never have come into the voluntary death of the flesh. And therefore it was with justice said to him of our redeemer, Thou movest me against him to afflict him without cause. As though it were said in plainer words, whereas this man dies not on his own account, but on account of that other, thou didst then move me to the afflicting of this one. When thou didst withdraw that other from me by the cunning persuasions, and of him it is rightly added without cause, for he was destroyed without cause, who was at once weighed to the earth by the avenging of sin, and not defiled by the pollution of sin, he was destroyed without cause. Who, being made incarnate, had no sins of his own, and yet being without offense, took upon himself the punishment of the carnal. There you go, Gregory the Great, teaching penal substitution. 900 years before modern detractors claim that penal substitution was even invented as a one of the many valid theories as to how the atonement worked. So there you have it. Who, who are you going to believe? Okay, Are you going to believe those people who are attacking penal substitution? And what are they replacing it with, by the way? A kinder and gentler God. A kinder and gentler God who doesn't have wrath or punishments. No, 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 no. It's, it's, he's only a loving God. But uh, the claim that penal substitution was invented 1,500 years after the church began, busted. Majorly, uberly, totally busted. There we go. That was fun. <laughs> okay, seven minutes ago. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so there you go. We did a little myth busting here. Yes, believe it or not, penal substitution was not invented 500 years ago. It's in the Bible, and it was taught by the church fathers, the early church fathers. And how did they find it? They opened up God's Word and read it, because there it is. It's in the Bible. All right, we're up on our second break. And uh, coming up after the break... We're going to be talking about ABC's upcoming Satan debate that's going to be on tomorrow night. We're going to kind of clue you in a little bit ahead of time about this particular debate. And then we're going to be listening to Bishop Carlton Pearson um, basically claiming that God is not a Christian. And then we're going to be reviewing his sermon entitled New Visions and New Versions of God. Yeah, that ought to be entertaining. So um, stay tuned. Stick around for hour number two, or, well, segment number two, because segment number two really runs longer than an hour. And if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard today on this edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back.
If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you are in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. This month's Pirate Christian Radio Book of the Month for March is Theologia et Apologia. This important work gathers together 18 essays written by some of today's top biblical and Reformation scholars, including Michael Horton, Adam Francisco, Angus Manuge, John Warwick Montgomery, Craig Parton, Kim Riddlebarger, and R.C. Sproul. Collectively, the essays in this book teach and defend biblical theology, especially the theology restored to the church during the time of the Reformation. They address topics including the case for biblical inerrancy, a Christian critique in response to Islam, repentance, a defense of sola scriptura, and much, much more. This little-known theological treasure is a welcome addition to the library of any thinking Christian. You can purchase Theologia et Apologia at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the store link. The book only costs $38 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to continue to bring Pirate Christian Radio to you. So visit piratechristianradio.com and purchase your copy today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Segment number two. The long segment. This is where we uh, we generally do our sermon reviews. And I don't like interrupting sermon reviews with commercials. It's just a personal preference. Hopefully I'm not cutting off my nose to spite my face. Hmm. That would hurt. All right, we're going to be uh, real quick here. We're going to do another news story. And I I think this one, this news story does call for uh, its own vintage news music. So cue up the vintage news music, please. All right, here's the headline. Mars Hill pastor to debate existence of Satan on ABC. That's right. This is from the Christian Post, written by Nathan Black. Now, Mars Hill pastor that would be referring to, not Rob Bell, but Mark Driscoll. Who, by the way, Mark Driscoll, theologically, he's a sound guy. Just in practice, he's got some stuff that's really upsetting a lot of people. He has a little bit of a potty mouth. And so he's a controversial figure as a result of it. And there's not a lot of people who are all that thrilled that Mark Driscoll is going to be representing Orthodox Christianity in this ABC debate on whether or not Satan exists. Anyway, the... We read the story. Two controversial preachers, a former Las Vegas escort, 
and an author on spirituality have been recruited by ABC to debate the existence of Satan. <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay. Um, the Yeah, the former Las Vegas escort, uh, I guess she's the head of a group called Hookers for Jesus. Oh, man. Okay. Now, I understand. I get it that the prostitutes, Jesus hung out with them and forgave that. That's not it at all. I look at this and I go, you know, there's just a lot of really uptight Christians who are going to have a hard time with that name. <laughs> okay. All right. It, it's provocative to say the least. Anyways, the unexpected lineup will tackle the issue at Mars Hill church in Seattle for ABC's nightline face-off series, which will air on March 26th, that would be tomorrow, arguing that the devil does exist will be Pastor Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill Church and Annie Laubert, founder of Hookers for Jesus. On the other side of the debate are Deepak Chopra, author of Jesus, A Story of Enlightenment, and Bishop Carlton Pearson, who is often labeled as a heretic for his gospel of inclusion preaching. Labeled as a heretic? Um, who wrote this again? Hang on a second here. Nathan, uh, yeah, Nathan Black. Nathan, Carlton Pearson is a heretic. <laughs> There's just no doubt about it. <sighs> anyway, considering the lineup, the debate is not likely to get any complex theology and history according to... T- <laughs> okay, according to T.J. Ray, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Sal Virginia University in Newport, Rhode Island, as reported by Seattle Times. Why don't they call professionals the people who wrote... <laughs> Apparently, the, big, the, the theologians are complaining about the fact the people who are representing Orthodox Christianity are pretty much lightweights. Now, listen... Driscoll is a reader. He is a lot smarter than people give him credit for, and I don't think he's a lightweight at all. I think he really does know his stuff, and he's a pretty strong Calvinist. Again, his issue is is that he has a potty mouth, and he has this um, ability to say things that that could make you go, what, is that appropriate for a Christian pastor to say? And so, um, he, but he's not a lightweight. That That's for sure. He's not a lightweight. He's controversial. And rightfully so, and I wish he wouldn't be doing a lot of the things that he's doing, not because he's controversial, but because I think he discredits himself. <sighs> anyway, so uh, apparently the people uh, people think that this is kind of ridiculous. So Deepak Chopra, Bishop Carlton Pearson on the one side saying that Satan doesn't exist. And Bishop Carlton Pearson claims to be a Christian pastor, by the way. And then on the other side, representing the good guys, that would be us, yay team, um, is Mark Driscoll and a, a, a gal who heads up something called Hookers for Jesus. I'll be recording it. <laughs> and if there's anything worthy of reporting, we will definitely be playing sound bites here on Fighting for the Faith. But I wanted to let you know ahead of time, you know, that this... It may not be WrestleMania, um, but it may be worth tuning into. Who knows? Oh, man. (laughs) Okay. Changing the subject here. We're going to be talking about Bishop Carlton Pearson. All right. 
since we brought him up, I want you to know about the guy who's going to be, who claims to be a Christian bishop and as a pastor, wears a cross and clericals and everything. He has a church down there in in, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma called New Dimensions Worship Center. New Dimensions Worship Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In fact, when you arrive at the homepage for the New Dimensions Church website, or worship center, I'm sorry, you're hit with these questions. Do you think Christ died only for Christians? You know what's really weird is that, you know, he's making the claim that Jesus didn't die only for Christians. You know who else uses that exact same language? Rick Warren. I just find it odd. Anyway, he says, do you think Christians are too mean? Do you think most people are going to hell? Are you ready to think differently and engage in new thought? You see, you can learn new thought at New Dimensions Worship Center, which is the friendliest, trendiest, most radically inclusive worship experience out there. Yeah, that's right. That's what it says on their website. The friendliest, trendiest, and most radically inclusive worship experience at the the New Dimensions Worship Center. Well, so I was poking around on their website to learn a little bit more of what it is that Bishop Carlton Pearson teaches and why is it that he would sit on the same side of the aisle with Deepak Chopra, Indian New Age mystic, and side with Deepak Chopra in denying the existence of the devil. Which, by the way, kind of leads to a question. Uh, If Satan doesn't exist, then who was Jesus talking to when he was being tempted in the desert for 40 days? You remember that whole story? Let me me find this. Tempted. All right. No. Okay. We'll read it from Matthew chapter 4. Here we go. Matthew chapter 4. It says this. In in the Gospel of, of Matthew... And by the way, this is also picked up in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, Mark picks this up and Luke also picks this up. Yeah, so this is covered in uh, the three synoptic gospels. Here we go. Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wait a second. Bishop Carlton Pearson is going to be sitting on the same side of the aisle with Deepak Chopra claiming that the devil doesn't exist. And to which I basically say, huh? It says here in Matthew, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by this non-existent being known as the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter, the devil came to him saying, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil, apparently non-existent devil, took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil, apparently a non-existent being, took Jesus up to a very... Maybe Jesus was hallucinating. Uh, the devil took Jesus to a very uh, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their and their glory and he said to him all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him be gone Satan 
uh, be gone, non-existent one, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only serve him. And then the devil left him, the non-existent being left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That whole opening section to Matthew chapter 4, don't make a bit of sense if the devil doesn't exist. In other words, that little story would be nothing more than pure fanciful mythology. Yet the New Testament biographers write it as if it was historical fact. I mean, there's dialogue. I mean, they, there's nothing there that say that this was some kind of a dream, a vision, some kind of a mytho- mythological, fanciful thing that they were writing. No, they write it as historical fact. And if there is no devil, then the story doesn't make any sense. The New Testament authors are lying to us. And you might as well go find another religion because Christianity ain't got nothing to offer you because it's not even true. Nope. I'm going to go with the New Testament authors rather than... Bishop Carlton Pearson. Uh, But then I found this wonderful little uh, video at Bishop Carlton Pearson's website. Here we go. Here's the audio from the video. You can't see it, but you can hear it. Here we go. Did you know that God is not a Christian? Gasp. Yeah, the, the, the name of the video is God is not a Christian. Did you know that God is not a Christian? Listen carefully here. God is spirit and God is love. And those who worship him... And there are literally billions who do all around the world in every cultural expression, every religious identification and faith persuasion, do it in spirit and in truth. That's right. You just heard Bishop Carlton Pearson, a supposed Christian minister, telling us that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. And there are billions of people who do in every cultural expression in every religion that do worship God in spirit and truth. How's that possible if the other gods don't exist and the other religions are false? Let me play that again here. God is not a Christian. God is spirit and God is love. And those who worship him, and there are literally billions who do all around the world in every cultural expression, every religious identification and faith persuasion, do it in spirit and in truth. Faith is all-inclusive, and so is God's redemptive love. God really loves you. Whoa. Uh, So this would fall under the category of a false gospel. Uh, Why? Because um, apparently he's just declaring that God's love is all-inclusive. Christ's redemption was all-inclusive. Therefore, everybody's saved and everybody worships God. Doesn't matter what religion you're in. Uh, What about those passages in Scripture where Jesus sends the goats to hell for eternal punishment? You know, throws people into the lake of fire. Read Revelation. It's there. So, Carlton Pearson is kind of a bird of a different color. Many of the sermons we review here at Fighting for the Faith are people who are who would never object to an orthodox doctrine of, of belief. You know, Rick Warren is orthodox. At least he claims that he believes orthodoxally. I, I said that wrong. I mean, Chris Songson claims to be an Orthodox Christian. I mean, there's nothing heretical on his website. The problem is those guys, they have Orthodox belief statements, but they don't preach orthodoxy from the pulpit. They find other things to preach that are more important than preaching orthodoxy. Uh, Carlton Pearson, on the other hand, uh, this guy, got to warn you ahead of time as we get dive into this sermon, 
I'm going to tell you this. There is a reason why pastors need to prepare their sheep and feed them God's word and to have them go deep into God's word. I'm going to tell you why. It's because of men like Bishop Carlton Pearson. This guy is a great communicator. This guy is good looking and he is wickedly smart. And he can twist the Bible like it's nobody's business. Okay? In fact... If you are a Christian and attending one of these, these you know, half an inch shallow, deep uh, mega churches, the purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive types, uh, I guarantee you, you are not being prepared to defend yourself against somebody like Carlton Pearson. This guy would eat your lunch and more than likely have you, your head spinning so fast you wouldn't even know what hit you. Okay? Only Christians who are mature Disciples in God's word are capable of taking this guy on. Trust me when I tell you that, okay? And that's the reason why it's so bad and awful that these purpose-driven churches out there, not that they don't believe orthodoxy, they're not teaching orthodoxy. They're not teaching you what God's word really says when they give you five easy tips on how to make your sex life better. That's not orthodoxy. That's not sound doctrine. That's a distraction, and as a result of it, you are woefully, woefully and ill-prepared to defend the Christian faith, yet alone tell somebody what it really is, and you, you're completely defenseless against somebody like this guy. So hang on. Here we go. We're going to do our sermon review now. The name of the sermon is New Visions and Versions of God from Heretic, and he's proud about that, by the way, Heretic. Bishop Carlson Pearson from the New Dimensions uh, Worship Center. Last week, I started talking to you about new visions and versions of God. New visions and new versions, new understandings, expanded perceptions of God. Stop. Right off the bat, there's a problem. If you know your Bible, the one thing we understand about God is that God actually has attributes. Okay, there are attributes that they call incommunicable attributes, which means they can't be transferred to any other types of beings. And then there are uh, communicable attributes, the stuff that we all share. Okay, one of the incommunicable attributes of God is that he is not changeable. He does not change. Okay, now let me back this up with just a little bit of scripture. If you have your Bible, open it up to Psalm 102, and I'm going to read to you three verses, 25 through 27. And if you like, go back and do your homework and read the full thing in context so that you understand that context, context, context is important. But we read, of old, you, that's God, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain forever. They will all wear out like a garment You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Now, why am I quoting this passage? Why? Because it makes it clear. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God doesn't change. He's the same. In fact, what's that Chevy slogan? Like a rock? Yeah, that's God. Steady. Unchangeable. Like a rock. Malachi chapter 3, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 4. We read this. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. 
speaking of John the Baptist, by the way, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. I'm sorry, verse, and can I continue verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, for I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. We continue. For the Lord, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, your God, do not change. Therefore, you children of Jacob are not consumed. Okay? Now, I read that thing in context because I wanted you to hear the part in, in, verses five, in verse 5 about how God will draw near for judgment for those who are sorcerers, adulterers, who, bear, who swear falsely against those who oppress hired workers and his wages, the widow, the fatherless. That, that's going to come into play here shortly. Let me read to you another passage. This is from the epistle uh, written by the Apostle James. The Apostle James, chapter uh, 1, verses 12 through 18, we read, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Notice that God promises the crown of life to those who love him, but only those who have faith can love God, by the way. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let me read that again. Every good gift, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of this he will he will of his own will he br- he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures so james makes it clear that there there is no shadow of change with god no variation He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or Psalm chapter 33, verses 10 and 11 says this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plan of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord, though, stands forever, the plan of his heart to all generations. God doesn't change. God doesn't change. So, in other words, we don't need new visions or versions of God. Unless, of course... The idea that you have of God is malformed and incorrect. If your perception of God is that he is something that he isn't, then your perception needs to change because you are not believing correctly about God. But here's the deal. 
There ain't no new Bible out there, and there's no new information being put into the system regarding God. That being the case, God doesn't change. He is who he says he is in his word. He does what he says he's going to do in his word, and he accomplishes what he says he's going to accomplish in his word, and he punishes those things he says he's going to punish, and he rewards those things he says he's going to reward. And God doesn't change. So this idea of new versions and new visions of God, right off the bat, you should be going, wait a second, that doesn't sound right, because it isn't. Because we need a new one. The one we have is broke. The image we have is sick and sickening, and it's produced the kind of violence we're seeing in the Middle East and what we're seeing in the suburbs of Tulsa and in the inner so apparently we've got a broken idea about God and it's causing the problems in the Middle East. Wouldn't that be uh, the, the problems in the Middle East? Wouldn't those be caused by the false God of Islam? Just a thought. City of Tulsa. We need a new image of God and a broader image of good because we think good and God is based on our religious presuppositions, which are not serving us well let me read a text that helps me confirm that it's not absolutely outlandish now i'm going to point something out to you here this guy doesn't really believe in the authority of scripture but he quotes it authoritative he is slippery (laughs) for me to say we need a new vision or version of god the ministry jesus hold on he's actually going to quote the the bible to tell us that we need a new vision and version of god but the god revealed in the bible doesn't change See, you can't quote the Bible to say that we need a new version of God. That's ridiculous. It's just, it doesn't even follow. Has received, the book of Hebrews says, is superior to theirs, meaning the Old Testament image or covenant of God. As the covenant of which he is mediator is superior. Now we're talking about two different covenants, two different images of relationship with God. One is the old the Hebrew writer is mentioning a new image, a new, a more superior, a broader, better relationship. The King James says, and instead of saying superior, it says excellent, diaphoros in Greek, which means differing or different, literally varying, excelling, past or surpassing the old one. The, the, the ministry that is liturgia in Greek, where we get the word liturgy. Okay, what, I'm telling you, this guy is wickedly smart. Okay, wickedly smart. This guy ain't no dummy, and he's very dangerous. And he can quote the, the biblical languages as good as any of them. The public function, the liturgy of Jesus, the ministry Jesus has received is superior. Christ consciousness... Jesus didn't come to represent God, but to represent God in imagery. The image of God needed to change. It needs to change again to a greater and a more expansive God. The ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator, go-between, bridge builder, is superior. It is excellent. It is excelling to the one, to the old one. And it is founded on better. That word Crichton means stronger or, 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 or more able, more stable, more noble promises. It is built on better promises. Now he's talking about de- degrees or levels of, of worth. 
There was the old covenant, there was a new covenant. Both of them expand 4,000, 6,000 years, 2,000 years ago. If he could change images, he could enhance images today. Your image of God, look at me while I tell you this, very important. Your image and my image of God probably needs a lot of tweaking. Most of us are scared of it or scared of it. That's why the book of Revelation and what I try to, to dispel... Uh, okay, so apparently our vision of God needs tweaking because we're scared of God. Scared of his judgment. wonder why people would have a fear of judgment from God. Hmm. Couldn't have anything to do with the fact that the Bible, in fact, one of the passages we just read, says that God's going to act swiftly in judgment against sinners. And we all know that we've sinned. No, I couldn't have anything to do with that. The myth of the end of the world paranoia that has people so scared that God's going to burn everything up. He's going to admit that the whole earth project was a mistake. Uh, by, by the way, uh, the Apostle Peter does say that um, the earth and the elements will be melted. Uh, just want to point that out. I mean, not that Peter knew anything, not like he was an apostle who hung out with Jesus or anything like that. I mean, not that he's authoritative. It's all going to go up in flames, and then he's going to put a bunch of people, billions in hell, and burn them forever, and civil and civil and boil away, for we have an extra special judgment today that he's making a list and checking it twice and going to find out who's naughty or nice. Jesus Christ is coming to town. A lot of people talk about the second coming, but they're afraid because when he comes, he's coming to judge. And this whole image of a judgmental, angry, visceral, vindictive, violent, uh, psychotically emotional God who's sitting in heaven uh, paranoid over you fussing, cussing, and lusting and, and, and wants to get you and vindicate himself and that whole image is so warped but it has the whole world paranoid notice that uh, there were some truthful descriptions and then caricatures thrown in there you know, Jesus is making a list and checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Jesus is coming to town, psychotic, all that kind of stuff. Um, he's not preaching from a specific text at this point, and he's just glossing over and basically poo-pooing and saying, if you believe what the Bible says about that, then you've just got the wrong idea about God. Yeah, but the Bible says all of those things. And we're dropping bombs on each other in the name of that image. Talk okay, apparently the reason why the United States is at war is because we're—it's a holy war. Really. Talk to me, somebody. For there had been, verse 7, if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, or the first image, or the first version, or testament, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. Or some texts say, God just found fault with the covenant. Not just the people, but with the covenant. And said, and said I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to give you a new position. I'm going to put some, a new thing out there. I believe that if he could do that 2,000 years ago, he might be able to do it today. A revised vision. It is the perception of many people.
Oh, so because you know, God could renew a covenant back then, that means that he could have a revised vision today. Uh, see how he's basically trying... To, okay, <clears throat> he's slipping something in here. Okay, just because there is a new covenant and an old covenant does not automatically mean that God can't do something like that today. The question is whether or not God is doing something like that today, and if he was, how would we know? Well, because God doesn't change, even if he was doing something, quote, new today, the new thing he was doing wouldn't contradict his attributes of the things that he's done back in the past. Uh. Not just Christians and Jews, that God tells us what's best for us, and then it's up to us to do it or else. He supposedly tells us not inwardly or individually, but through a book or Bible, through sacred writings dictated to man or men and handed down in literary form as the standard by which we should all live and by which we all will one day be judged. We all have our Bibles. How many of you brought your Bible this morning? You got the sacred... Well, you're quoting from it, and, and yet at the same time you seem to be uh, attacking it. Strange tactic. Good script, or you have Bibles in your home, and you hold that Bible, and you memorize Scripture. We've all done, I preach from the Bible. I'm quoting from it now. I actually use the Bible in the book, God is Not a Christian, to prove that God is not one. <sighs> I use the Bible to prove that God's not a Christian. I God is God. Okay, this idea that God's not a Christian... What exactly does that accomplish? It's a strange way of talking. God is the object of the of faith for a Christian. A Christian is a human being who trusts and believes the gospel, repentance, repented of sins, trusts in the gospel for their salvation. You know, the, the message that Christ died for their sins. So this, you know what? God's not a cat either. And you know what? Just to be careful, God isn't an elephant either. What does that prove? Nothing. I can't really prove that God is God, but I can't disprove that God is God. So I'm not really trying to do that. Most people presume God, but then we create God. We were created in God's image and likeness and we return the favor. We created him in our image and likeness. Talk to me, somebody. Each religion has its own book, Bible, and our sacred script or scriptures. And each church or denomination within that religion has its rules, regulations, and rites, ceremonial rites, to further emphasize, explain, and execute the rules already laid down in the sacred writings. Uh, problem here. Um, you're not correctly distinguishing between law and gospel. Hmm. Okay. So what he's doing is he's characterizing Christian churches as places where you the, they had, each denomination has its own set of rules that they emphasize in order for you to be saved. The problem is that's not a correct description of Christian denominations at all. All Christian denominations that are truly Christian teach salvation by grace through faith, not through works. And the purpose of the law is to show us our sin and to show us what a good work is. You have the Talmud, you have the New Testament Bible, you've got the Quran, and the list goes on. We've been taught, at least in Abrahamic faiths, that's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that we were created in both uh, God's image and likeness, and that we were born in sin, shaped in iniquity, that we are intrinsically bad. 
Yeah, that's because what the Bible says. We were by nature objects of God, God's wrath. Ever read that part? You know, Ephesians chapter 2 or Romans chapter 3. All have sinned. Together they become worthless. No one seeks God. No one loves God. Romans 3. You, re- you ever read it? And it's from birth. Born with an automatic death sentence, followed by eternal torture and unspeakable torment and unending weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. You've heard that all your life. You're going to be judged. You're born in sin. You're already guilty. And in American jurisprudence, you're innocent to prove it guilty. But in religious jurisprudence, you're guilty to prove it innocent. Wrong. You're a sinner until you're declared righteous in Christ. There's a big difference. We do it the other way around. So people come here lost. That's what we're taught. That's what I believed. Born in sin, shaped in iniquity, I'm lost. I have a death sentence on me. And if the right person doesn't find me and get me to Jesus, I'm lost. So we spend our money and our time going in the foreign fields, trying to reach lost people. And it looks like the the lost people, so to speak, are multiplying over and over and over. And other religions are sweeping the world and Christianity might be shrinking. And we just get scared and we're paranoid and we feel that God's going to judge us. All these people's blood's going to be required to our hands. And God's up there saying, okay, you save them. You better win them. You better witness. You better share. You better get them saved. You better pluck them out of the hand of the devil or these people are going to hell. And their blood's going to be required to your hand. Now and your head a lot of people subliminally believe that and live in constant guilt even if you witness to one today you don't feel like you witness to enough and if you were not successful at really getting them convicted or convinced you feel like you weren't anointed enough and so you should fast and pray more and see god more and you should have more anointing you should be winning people and you're not winning enough people and you get angry at yourself and no this is kind of bizarre way of thinking I mean, definitely we Christians should have a passion for the lost. But those who get obsessed to this point, uh, they need to hear about the mercy and forgiveness of Christ for them. I mean, even Paul at times had to shake off the dust on his feet or he was thrown outside and rocked. They threw rocks at him. (sighs) Nobody even admits this. That's why there's so much dysfunctionalism in our religious circles. So apparently if you believe that there's lost people that are born in sin and you want to reach them and you feel guilty because you haven't reached them, this is, uh, the, this is creating dysfunctionalism in the church uh, because you're believing what God's word says. Uh-huh. Because we think God is requiring something of us that is not at all the requirement of God. I share the gospel out of love for my neighbor. How could I not share the gospel? It's such amazingly great news. I don't have to do it. I get to do it. You and I are not saviors. If this world needs to be saved, then the creator saves it. And supposedly he's done that and communicated to us this truth. And we're then supposed to inform the world that they're saved, not transform the world by trying to save it. Huh? We're supposed to inform the world that they're saved? Huh? Huh? How'd he slip that one in? Telling people that there is no hostility between God and man. It's hard for us to believe that this is... Wait a second, wait a second. Whoa, did you slow down there, partner? Gee, wah. Hang on a second. John 3. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see here. Mm -hmm. Let me find this passage. Okay, John chapter 3... 
Okay, here we go. John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yeah, kind of weird that uh, Foster, David Foster, didn't finish that whole verse in yesterday's sermon review. Anyway, he says, uh, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay, so let's, let me see if I can back this up just a smidge. And let, hang on, here we go. Thousands of years entrenched in us, we think God is angry. Okay, what about what I just read? Is condemned already in the, okay. <laughs> All right. Verse 10 of this chapter of Hebrews reads, This is what the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Most New New Testament Christians presume these words to apply to us as well. But he says, This is the covenant I will make with Jews, with the house of Israel. That is an assumption. But it's important to note hermeneutically that these words were written by Jews to Jews about Jews, the children of Israel. We have adopted them as if they apply to us. How many of you kind of consider the Old Testament references to you as well? Okay. If you're going to be really a literalist, they don't apply to you at all. It's all about Israel. But Christianity is a Jewish religion. Our Bible as a New Testament is a Jewish, borrowed from Jewish thought. But God says... Actually, um, Jesus is the Messiah. The promised Messiah that was promised through the word of God that was written by the Jews whom God chose for himself. Jesus is the completion. He completed the Torah, and he is the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies of the Messiah. In that Old Testament, which Hebrews is quoting, after that time, declares the Lord, now watch this, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Now, what is this referring to? Is this something that's now or coming? Okay, when you're quoting the Bible and you're talking about, in those days I will, you know, put my law in their hearts. What is that referring to? This sounds like an eschatological text to me, not one that applies to today. Now, he was already Israel's God, and already Israel was his people. But he's repeating this, and we take it personally that we, he is our God, and he will be our people. But he says, I will put my laws in their minds. The word laws is Torah, means my precepts, my standards in their minds. And I will write them upon their hearts. Now, for the sake of today's meditation, let's presume these words, if not all the Bible, refers to all of humanity, not just Jews and Christians or Jewish religion. Okay? Why would we uh, assume that it applies to all of humanity? You just said that the people don't read the Old Testament right because it was written to Jews, and if you're a literalist, then you have to understand it doesn't apply to you. Why is he now changing his mind and taking this text and deciding he's going to apply it universally? Without any distinction as to whether or not somebody has faith in Christ. Hmm. Doing so is significant to what I'd like to say. 
Let's believe, and I think all of us do, that those words apply to us. That God's laws are in our, written on our minds. Yeah, but we're not saved by the law. The law only condemns us. Yes, Romans chapter 1 makes it clear that God's law is written on the hearts of everybody. Everybody. What are those laws? Is he talking about the, 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 the commandments or the law of love? Wait a second. <clears throat> law of love. Love is the law. What is the? How do you sum up all of the law and the prophets? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. All of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart. Do not murder. Do not steal. All of those impact are sprout from first and foremost a lack of love or non-existent love towards god and non-love towards your neighbor hmm or both supposedly jesus said i leave one law with you i fulfill all the others all the commandments and i'm just leaving one that's the law of love but the actual literal reference to this He's quoting Jeremiah, actually is about the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, and and several hundred additional uh, addendums to that law. So God has all these laws in your mind. How many of you think you have the laws of God in your mind? Or do you just have the laws of your church in your mind? You got some kind of law in there. So what about these laws? How do we handle with these laws? These words were spoken 500 years before Christ. Okay? They refer specifically to the Old Testament Jews. Now, a writer in the New Testament, and we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but somehow it's in the canon. We're not sure who wrote the book of Revelation. There's three different Johns. What? Most of the scriptures are considered forgeries. What? He's quoting it authoritatively and at the same time undermining it. Ugh. Just, can you have your cake and eat it too? Is that possible? A lot of them close before the person, the, the writer dies, before the thing actually came to us. So there's a lot of speculation. You never hear this. You're not going to hear this. Because we are actually saying the Bible that we hold as sacred might not be as absolutely trustworthy as inerrant and infallible as we've been taught. Because we- Yeah, it's... it's, it's oh man. Whenever somebody is undermining God's word like this... The part that isn't authoritative is the part they disagree with. They want to be Lord and ruler and God over the scriptures. So when you come up, you, you point out a passage and says, this is what God's word says. Oh, that's not authoritative. That's the mythological part. We don't know who wrote it. Well, by faith, I believe God wrote it. Well, that's cool. That's what we kind of believe. I think God sent this sermon, but it ain't going to come out exactly the way God would have sent it. I think God sent me to the planet and sent you to the planet, but I'm not sure I'm, I'm not exactly, uh, absolutely perfect. How, how many of you know God would, how many of you think God might? You see what he's doing? He's actually attacking the authority of Scripture in church while quoting the Bible. This is surreal. Sent an imperfect being to the planet. Two of you, Okay. New image of God. We're talking about new covenants. Verse 10. This is the covenant. 
This is the image I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. He's speaking futuristically, 500 years before Christ. He hadn't made the covenant at that time, but predicted its existence for later, hundreds of years later. I will put, the word is didome in Greek, I will give or bestow or commit, I will adventure or venture my laws, my Torah, my precepts and statutes. In Greek, it would be my nomos, my rules and regulations. My rights. I will. That was kind of silly. Um, diddle me. Give namas law. Uh, law. You know. So it's funny. He's throwing Greek words out right here that are kind of not the important <laughs> words to give. Um, that was weird. I will put my laws, my precepts and principles, my standards in their minds. That's their deep thought in Greek. The Anoa. In, in their deep thought, in their deepest recesses of consciousness, I will put my laws in there. And I believe that God's law of love and light is in the deep thought of every human being on the planet. Yeah, but the law only accuses us and shows us that we're sinners. Purpose of the law, show us our sin. Talk to me, somebody. I will put it in their imagination. I'll put it in their understanding. I'll put it in their inner knowing and write it. The word is epigrapho in Greek, which means I will inscribe. <laughs> Who cares that the Greek word for write there is epigrapho? Who cares? That's, that, that doesn't really bring any light to this passage at all. Ugh. Prescribe, describe, engrave, or graft it on their hearts. I will graft, I will describe, prescribe, inscribe, I will scribble it. Uh, now he's just throwing out lexical meanings of the word epigrapho. Scripture it, script it on their hearts. Look at me when I tell you this. God's law of love and light is in great ingrained and engrafted in every person you meet. Yeah, but it's not the law that saves us. It's the gospel. The good news that Christ died for our sins, that we believe and grasp by faith, not by works of the law. Including you. In their hearts, the word is cardia. You heard of a cardiologist? It's cardio in Greek. In their hearts, in their cardiology. We also get the word accord or accordion from that. The Latin word for heart is cor. You know, him throwing around all these Greek, these Greek words like this really does make it sound like he just knows his stuff. And like I said, he's very slippery. This guy's smarter than you think. But the Greek words that he's throwing around really aren't telling us anything. Corazon, my heart, then sings my soul, my corazon, or my core, my heart, and my love, my center, my middle, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God. He's taking a long time to make this point. Man, get on with it, man. And they will be my people. Now, this is God supposedly prophesying through the prophet 500 years before Christ, saying that I'm going to be all over you, all in you, all around you. We're going we're gonna to be one. 
No longer. This is the key verse. This puts me out of a job. Number 11. No longer. Now listen carefully with what he's going to do here. Your head will be spinning when you hear this. If, if you have a seatbelt, you might want to put it on. And a helmet. Will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. That is definitely an eschatological text. It's something that's still coming. The day after Christ returns, we will no longer have to say to somebody, Know the Lord. Everyone will know him face to face. From the least of them to the greatest. Why, Lord, why you put that in there? You just talked, you said they don't need me. I'm supposed to be the teacher. He says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Uh, Here comes an adventure in completely missing the point and misapplying the text because this is an eschatological text. And he's applying it to... Today. Now that is God talking about himself. I am going, I got this thing together. You know what blocks people from recognizing that they know God? Religion. What? <laughs> what blocks people from knowing God is religion. How, okay, whenever somebody talks like this, immediately my radar is going up. There's something wrong here. Religion religion tells you you cannot know God except through it. But that's not what the prediction of the prophecy from God supposedly came. What's the it? God's word? We know about God through his revelation of himself? You remember, you're, you're actually quoting eschatological text. This is talking about a day that has not yet come. This actually came from God. He says, listen, you, you won't need teachers. Then why are you teaching? Huh. Of course, I, I, I believe you, you do need some. Uh-huh. But the text you just misapplied, if you were correctly applying it, then we don't need you. Please don't take this literally because I'd be out of... But maybe when... Oh, man. we really mature... You will know God in such a way I might enhance your knowledge, help facilitate your knowledge, help inspire your knowledge, but you know him. That's why I say that real truth is not only taught or learned, it's really remembered. (laughs) Oh, man. So the, the real truth, all this truth about God, you already have it in there. You just need to remember it. Apparently... You're born with spiritual amnesia. It's just, it's there. If you could just get the synapses in your brain to fire right. Oh, boy. If I really flow at my maximum in ministering, I'm going to remind you of what you already know. You know God. You know God. You don't need nobody to tell you about God. You know what? Because you're part God. Whoa. <laughs> If you're driving your car, please do not swerve into the other lane. Yes, you just heard him say, you are part God. That's why I say this guy is a different breed altogether. Wait till you hear how he explains this. Even if you never met your parents, you are still part of them. Have you ever seen any of these TV? 
Now, notice at this point, he's not bringing us God's word. He's just telling us a nice little story. <sighs> TV programs where they find twins that were separated at birth, and then they meet 30, 40 years later, and they, they still have the same genetic makeup, the same chromosomes. They married men with the same name, same job, or vice versa. They're basically doing the same kind of thing. They like the same things because they're inextricably connected. Even if they don't know it, you are part of God. You're a parcel of God. You're a participant of God, whether you know it, whether you like it, whether you believe it or not. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, apparently, I'm a participant with, boy, delusions of deification and grandeur. Yeah. You are part of your parents and you weren't there when it happened. You became, when your mom and dad came together, three or four hundred million microscopic seed, chased the one egg your mother released, all of them died except the one that fertilized the egg. You've heard me say this. When the egg was fertilized, instantly your genetic code was established. Your DNA was stamped on every cell in your body. Even if your mom and dad were not married, even if it was a one-night stand and both of them was drunk. And how does this prove that we're gods again? Which is obvious the case with a few of you. You're still here. You're still here. And your name is your title. It's not who you are. You're beyond the title or the appendage somebody puts on you. Oh, hallelujah. Uh, how can I say hallelujah to that? Because what you're saying isn't found in God's word. You're rolling your own theology here, uh, Bishop Pearson. You're not what somebody else calls you. You're what God calls you. And where uh, does God say that I'm a God? What God inspires you to do and become. Don't be the accidental. You be the essential. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Before me, no God was formed. That's Isaiah chapter 43, if I'm not mistaken. Hang on a second here. God and doing a little search here. I may not have it in this and before. Okay, I want this from the Old Testament or from all text. Uh -huh. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. Mm -hmm. Isaiah chapter 45 says, For thus says the Lord, starting in verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, He is God who formed the earth and made it, He established it, and He He did not create it empty, and He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other Okay, so uh, God's word says that uh, there's no other God except for the one God. All right. Immutable, permanent, unchangeable, essential use. You just said that God's unchangeable, yet we need to have a new vision, of a new version of God? Ah. <sighs> Self-contradictory. Turn to somebody and say, you have no idea who you're sitting next to. If you really knew who I was, come on, say, if you really knew who I was, you'd give me a tenth of your income. Oh, wow. 
Okay, that that was blasphemy. <laughs> uh, folks, if you ever wanted to know what blasphemy sounded like, that was just it. He just <laughs> led people in telling their neighbor, if you knew who I was, you'd give me a tenth of your income. As if uh, you're God. Wow. Okay, head, stop spinning. <laughs> and bless me all the days of your life. Because I came from God. Hey, hey, I came from God. Verse 11, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive. You know, at least he has that in common with Deepak Chopra when he sits on the same side of the debate table uh, regarding Satan. Um, at least we know that both of them think they're gods. Forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That's the day we live in. Look at me when I tell you this. God does not remember sin. He doesn't make note of it. Uh, yeah, the thing is, is that if you don't have faith in Christ and his promises, then um, you're still under God's condemnation. You remember the whole sheep and the goats punishment there in Matthew? Goats on the left, sheep on the right. Goats, he says to them, depart from me into eternal punishment. How would that happen if... Well, never mind. We do. I mean, why bring up the Bible? I mean, now, I mean, seems kind of like a mood issue. Our conscience reminds us when we violated our own self-dictates. We self-interrogate. And God says, I'll remember their sins no more. If God says, I'll remember them no more, that, that, does, that not mean ex does that mean except till the judgment day, then he's going to bring them all up? I won't remember your sins no more. Oh, it's judgment day. Wait just a minute. I got a whole list of them down here. Yeah. Somebody go get my book. Yeah, the, th the thing is, is that that really only applies to Christians. Christ died for the sins of the world, yes, but not all are saved because not all have faith. Go get my book. He clearly says, I'll remember them no more. Verse 13, by calling this covenant new, kainos in Greek, fresh or regenerate, rather than in, in, in age or chronic. Uh, Slippery, smart, snaky, wrong. By the way, that, what was the first, uh, yeah, what was that uh, deception of the snake? Uh, oh, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he knows on the day that you live, you become like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, this is the uh, lie from the garden about you being like God. So we got a satanic snake behind a Christian pulpit preaching satanic themes. Wow. This is, he's not talking about chronological time. He's talking about in freshness. He has made the first one, the first covenant, the first God or image of deity obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Look at somebody said, let it go. The angry, coarse, harsh, vindictive, vengeful, distant, cold, mean, wrathful God. That image is obsolete. Let it go. It's not going to be obsolete for those whom Christ says, depart from me, 
into eternal punishment. Which, by the way, from the sounds of it, is going to pretty much be everybody in your congregation, including you. It's disappearing. That's why folks call people like me heretics. What's up? They don't want to let go of that old image. Uh, no, they call you a heretic because you are. You're not teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine, and your doctrine absolutely contradicts God's word flat out. We want to be gluttons for punishment. It's like a lady that lives with an abusive husband and can't let him go. He's beating the living, living out of you. Or vi- <laughs> Couldn't finish that sentence, could he? Vice <laughs> versa. Or a job, and you're just, you're humiliated, you're demeaned, you feel like nothing, but you're holding on for the sake of what? Some folks hold on to that mean, cold, harsh God who's angry and judgmental. You're scared to be free, because freedom is not for cowards. Uh, The problem is here, he's right and he's wrong. In Christ, we have this loving, merciful God who remembers our sins no more because Christ has died for them, atoned for them, propitiated. Uh, You see what I'm saying? For Christians, through faith, we have this loving God. This guy is, there's no faith here. He's basically attacking the law, misapplying it, and then giving us a faithless gospel. He's giving us good news, but not the trust and faith in Christ part. It's kind of leaving out some of the dots. You think if you're free that you're hell-bound because you don't trust your humanity... Forgetting that God created you a human, he knew your capacities. I saw somebody the other day, and I don't want, this shouldn't be your, your, your practice. On television, I forget the exact setting, but there were two young men, and one turned and just cussed the other one up and down, called him all kind of whatever. And the other one did it back to him. They were loud, they didn't look around, they didn't do it sneakily. Then they walked up together and had a beer or something. And the words were pretty, pretty poignant. It was something I would never say to a friend. But I heard the Holy Ghost say, Do you, are you that free? <laughs> okay, so he undermines the scripture, claims that he's God, and then he, and the Holy Ghost talks to him directly. Oh, boy. I said, free from sin? What you mean? Free and sin. <laughs> now, listen, this is very important. He said, are you that free? I'm thinking, what, what do you mean, Spirit of God? Could you, not that I want to or would, could you cuss somebody out like that and just walk away and have a hamburger and not feel like I'm going to open up the earth and swallow you? And I said, no. Have you ever thought about it? Yes, 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 yes. Why didn't you do it? Because it's wrong? Well, first of all, it ain't right. It's not Christian. It's certainly not pastoral. And I don't want to die and go to hell, and I don't want to give people hell, and I want to, I want to keep the image up. He said, you're not free. Oh, boy. And so the Holy Spirit's sitting there condemning this guy for not being free enough to cuss someone out. So is, does the gospel make it so that we're free to 
sin? Or are we free from sin? Read Romans 6 if you're not sure. But I'm free from sin. I didn't cuss. Yeah, but you're not free. Because if you were free, you would do what you think to do and still know I'd love you. That doesn't mean you are going to go around doing crazy things. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's some deadly advice there. Antinomianism. Wow. Uh, Let's just turn Jesus' death on the cross into a complete license to sin because God's going to forgive you anyway. Whoa. But the reasons why you don't do them would change. Talk to me. The reasons why you don't do them would change. I don't know that freedom yet. I'm scared of it. Because I might cut somebody out. And I I don't even, I don't know the, the lingo as well as some of you do. Oh, you're a sinner. I'm sure you could wing it if you needed to. But I'm willing to take some cussing classes. Somebody could teach me something. I guarantee you don't need them. I'm sure you could do just fine all by yourself. You're a sinner by nature, just like the rest of us. (laughs) I got some trainers up here in the choir. It's like the first time we did Evensong here at, 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 at Trinity before we were actually reading, meeting regularly here. And they had a reception for us after the service. And they, they, they drink wine. They're not ashamed to drink wine. They don't hide it. They have all, ki- all kinds of wine. The table, and I had gotten up in this pulpit and talked about how, freedom, how free we are and that Jesus had, you know, turned first miracle, turned water into wine. And, you know, I was basically saying I don't consider drinking a sin anymore, but I don't habitually drink. I don't regularly drink. But I, you know, I, I thought there were, there were some of my transition into freedom. Then we went back here to one of the parlors, and they had a whole table set up just with all kinds of rich wines. Of course, they gave me a glass of Perrier. I was still a little hot. Nobody drank. Of course, none of our people did. Did We, we were just standing around the wall to my dad, my 78, then the 77, 78-year-old dad went over there and got a drink. Daddy used to drink heavily in, in his, you know, 50 years ago. He doesn't drink much today, but he went over to the table and got a drink. Them, them Negroes hit that table. This, when daddy did it, the whole crowd, What does this have to do with envisioning a new God? They were all free and the drinks was free. And look, wait a minute, wait a minute. They weren't asking, they was asking for mixed drinks. They knew what they were doing. I said, these people ain't safe. It was stunning to me. I mean, the whole choir hit that table. And I thought, I'm sitting around here. Now, keep in mind, this is the guy who's going to be sitting next to Deepak Chopra arguing against uh, the uh, existence of the devil. I'm thinking all these folks don't know nothing. They're all naive. They're all backsliders. They've all been in <laughs> It was amusing to me. And the re- somebody came over and handed me a glass, some white wine. And I... Since I talked all this bold, I said, sure, I'll have a glass. But but you sip wine, don't drink it. I was hot and sweaty, and I thought it was (laughs) Kool-Aid. A few minutes, everything was moving slowly. (laughs) 
the room starts spinning. I said, y'all mind if I sit down just a bit? Yeah, I'm beginning to agree with some of those theologians who are complaining about this upcoming debate on ABC, that uh, it's going to be a battle of lightweights. (laughs) Maybe they should be doing biblical mud wrestling. I mean, man. I broke out in a sweat. I did. And it was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Now, when are you free? And now, the Bible says don't use your freedom as, you know, as an opportunity to indulge your sinful nature. But what I'm saying is... Yeah, yeah, but you just denied that we had a sinful nature. You just went on and on and on and on about how you, you were taught and were falsely taught that we're sinful by nature and sinner... And you just quoted a passage and said, don't use this as a, uh, your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the sinful nature. Can't have it both ways, pastor. I mean, bishop, whatever you are. This new God that I'm, the new version of God is as uninterested in some of the things we magnify as, in fact, he doesn't even see a lot of the things that we amplify. And this new God that you're describing, not familiar with him, never, I don't even think he exists. I'm pretty sure uh, this is a God who isn't even there, like Baal. I, I'm sure if we were to shout at him, he wouldn't hear us because the lights are on and ain't nobody home. Make major. I'm not talking about careless living, riotous, promiscuous living. Here's how you avoid sin. You lose interest in it. You stop glamorizing it. You stop emphasizing it. For what you make the issue. Oh, yeah, that's just a piece of cake to do. How about confess it and receive forgiveness? You make the idol. And a lot of the things you call sin, God does not regard as such. That's why Jesus could drink so much wine, they call him a wine bibbler. And could eat so much food, they call him a glutton. He partied hardy. He was out. He was not into the legalism even of his Jewish brethren. Now, admittedly, I am not that free yet. Why? Because I don't trust myself to be that free. Because of the way I was raised. I'm guarding against. I'm watching always, you know, on guard, watching, watching, watching. So he's pretty much fleeing legalism out of the frying pan and into the fire. He hasn't discovered the real gospel. He's just made up his own. Lovely. Watching. It's good enough for me to wear my, I don't have a little bling on today, but I, it's, it's, that's, that's major for me. Major for me to, to come to church and see ladies still wearing britches in church. Pants. Because we were taught against it. First time I saw my mother wear pants, I vomited. A pair of pants, I vomited. I, I cried. I shook like, 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 uh, it stunned me. She ain't warm since. <laughs> Some, when it's cold, she'll wear, but somebody bought her some pants at a Methodist church. See, but my image of God was that he would kill people. He'll strike you down. Look at me. God kills women for wearing pants? Huh? That's wrong. Or that's inaccurate. The old version of God has grown obsolete, antiquated, outdated, and irrelevant to this hour, this day, or this season. We need to adopt and... Uh, the, the God you're describing there is also a, the false God of legalism. 
not the real God of the Bible. Or accept the new one. I didn't say another one. I just said a new one. Uh, No, really. The difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. The new one that you're describing isn't the one in the Bible. So it is another one. Not new in the sense of time because God doesn't change chronologically. God is timeless or not subject to time or even space. No, he's unchangeable. He doesn't change. It has nothing to do with time. It has to do with the fact his character is the same yesterday, today, forever. We need a new version and a vision of God in these, in the sense of image and perception. Indeed, a kinder, gentler God, one without anger, wrath, judgmentalism, one we... Uh, so we're just going to arbitrarily get rid of the stuff that we don't like about God, the uh, judgmental and wrath part. Um, but uh, the Bible is clear that God does judge and that his wrath is real. And when Christ comes back, we're going to see some of that. Can walk and talk with in the cool of the day as Adam did. Adam and Eve ran and hid from God after they sinned and disobeyed him. But notice how God came looking for them anyway. He didn't turn away from or abandon them. The only reason they were... He kicked them out of the garden. You remember the ground being cursed, women having pain during childbirth? You know, that stuff. Oh, and then you're going to, you know, from dust you are made and dust you'll return. The, the whole death thing, too. <sighs> Banished from the garden was so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life and live forever in that fallen state. <sighs> Hello, remember the cursing of the ground, pain in childbirth, that stuff? Even though they sinned, God still came looking for them. But they hid, according to the document that we call Scripture. People still hide. Nothing my son or daughter could do could ever make me stop loving them. I might want to knock them into the next world. I don't now. But you know, when they get older, kids do things that disappoint you and and hurt you. You're not correctly telling us about God's law and the gospel. You're just kind of going off on your own, giving us your own thoughts as to why we need a kinder and gentler God. But we have a kind, loving, and merciful God in Jesus Christ. For in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Christ is offering us full and complete pardon. The clarion call of the gospel is repent and believe the gospel. Good news, Christ died for us. Familiar with it? Ever heard of it? And parents go through that. My kids are very young, so I don't have any, any major, I hope I never do, major deals. But there's nothing my kids could do for me to permanently cut them off and send them to some torture chamber. In fact, if they went to prison, I'd be trying to get them out, trying to work a deal, talk to me. Well, that's great. Christ actually took care of us. He died for the sins of the whole world. Yet there are some who just won't. Somebody. How many of you do the same thing? You keep putting up with stuff. God keeps putting up with you because he loves you unconditionally. And his love is what drives him to do that. So as we get a new image of God, a new vision, a new version, see him as loving, as your friend, as approachable. And I'm not... I'm t- Only through Christ. Only through Christ. Hi. To the place now where I don't... This is why this is a false gospel. Because it's good news-ish. It's new, good newsy. But it doesn't really have the right details of the good news at all. And not only that, it completely 
takes out and cuts out the parts that you don't like about God, the wrath part, the punishment part, which is really ha- going to happen. Just believe in a God or the God. I just believe in God. I'm getting away from this man, this angry man that throws thunderbolts like Zeus. Running around having sex with women and jealous and psychotic. Uh, God does say that he's a jealous God. Doesn't like it when you worship other gods because they're not there. Fighting. That's man. That's not God. That's human angst and anger. Shake yourself from that. See God in you. See God as you. Oh. <sighs> See God as you? Uh, no, I'm not God. God and I are two different things. Beings altogether. I ain't God. Thank God I'm not God. Be blessed. Be enhanced. What? All the end of the world freaks are going to have a fit over what some of them may hear me say tonight. Oh, can't wait to hear this. They're going to be tormented by the fact that I don't buy into that left behind concept where God abandons billions of peoples. and and Yeah, I don't believe in the rapture either. So what? Trains start jumping tracks and buses fall off cliffs and planes fall out of the sky and God's violent. And Yeah, that's not the big problem. The big problem is you don't even believe that God's coming in judgment. Hello? Yeah, that's a good place to clap. Where did we get that image from? The Bible never says end of the cosmos. It only says end of the aeon, which means age. You know why we've been waiting 2,000 years for the world to end? It's not going to end the way you think. I hope this one ends, this religious arrogance ends. Uh, So if you actually believe the Bible and believe in the loving and wrathful and just God, then, uh, well, that's just religious, religious arrogance. Lovely. And that we have a new consciousness. That's why I say, I want you to go to the islands and swim in lagoons and sit under waterfalls and smell the lilacs. We're going to get some cruises up and we're going to take you all to places you, 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 you've only dreamed to go. And when it comes time, you're going to have the money to go. You're going to love this world and you're going to enjoy this world. And you're going to enjoy your life in this world. Notice how Satan makes his, his victims always very comfortable. That's, that's the best thing to do because that way they don't see the destruction coming. And you're going to stop fretting it. Mr. Saxon, who called me last week, is the same man who produced An Inconvenient Truth with Al Gore. He asked me to go see it, so I did. He said, we want to do that same kind of documentary with your life. He said, the man that works with me is number two in eBay. And he has deep pockets, and he just wants to do human interest stories. Stories that preserve the planet. Stories that that emphasize the dignity of humanity. I said, man, that's right down my alley. Let's talk. I'm I'm not afraid of the second coming because I am the second coming. You are the second coming. Whoa. Uh, By the way, another clear, clear instance of blasphemy. Oh, man. Pray for these people. They need it. It comes in consciousness. We are Christ again, better, broader, deeper, richer, fuller, Uh. full of life. 
full of energy. Wrap your arms around yourself. Whoa. <laughs> Wrap your arms around yourself. Oh, wow. Huh. Go ahead and be ostracized if that's what it takes. It's one thing to be ostracized for the truth. It's another to be called a heretic because, well, uh, you are. Folks, we can make a difference. And we're going to. It's needed that we do it. New vision, new version. You have to be willing to suspend what you think you know about God. In order yeah, all the stuff that we were taught in, from the Bible, from pastors and teachers who actually were telling us what the Bible actually said. You've got to suspend all that so that you can, you can maneuver in this, this new version, God 2.0. Unfortunately, uh, he's still in beta and full of bugs and doesn't even work. To know him in a way you've never imagined. To know God totally rather than selectively. To understand truth as God created it, not as man invented it. Uh, the Bible is not man invented truth there, dude. That's God's self-revelation. It's a new image. It's a new understanding. It's broader and deeper and more expansive. You know, his sappy music that's playing in the background is a lot better than some of the sappy music I've heard. It's got a little bit more rhythm to it. You're free. Oh, my, you're free. You are free. I decree it in the name of the Lord, you're free. The guilt, the criminality, the delinquency is gone. Love and be loved. Uh, no confession of sins, no repentance for sins, no sorrow, no contrition, no faith in Christ. He's just pronouncing absolution... Because he's God, by the way. Yeah. Accept yourself, accept your soul. Accept yourself. Really, where's that taught in the Bible? Yeah, the, 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 uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector who couldn't even look up to heaven, could only pray, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Was he accepting himself? No, it was the Pharisee who had accepted himself. Yep. Be the century in your own mind. Father, help us understand your fatherness. Uh, by the way, this little prayer is going nowhere because the God he believes in doesn't exist. The sponsoring thought, the idea that sponsored and spawned our existence on this planet. The and the stuff he's just blathering on about, there's nothing about, there's nothing about it that's true. He might as well be like pounding the wind intelligent design that somehow sent us here in this form we don't know but that maybe you god wanted to experience yourself materially so you sent us here to you experience he, he doesn't even know why christ was incarnate god incarnate maybe he just god wanted to experience things you know on an earthly level you know material physical earth in a way that you did not as spirit Whatever we can do to cooperate with your desires, we are yielded and willing to experience your... The God he's praying to doesn't exist. He's not there. It's not a real God. Self in us. Experience your soul in us. And may we experience ourselves and our... Even though he's got good, sappy music, still, there's, there's no God up there that can hear him. Because the one he, does, he believes in isn't the God of the Bible.
our soul in you. I see you in me, God. And every... Uh, you know what? When he prays, he really should be looking in the mirror. It might help him actualize God better. Human being I look at, I see you in them. And it's beautiful to me. For everlasting. I see... All right, we're done. <laughs> He's a good singer, too. So there you have it. He's going to be sitting next to Deepak Chopra and explaining to us uh, a supposed Christian bishop as to why Satan doesn't exist. Um, and here's the deal. If you know your Bible, you have nothing to fear from false teachers like this. It's pretty plain how wrong he is. But if you don't know your scriptures, these these guys... They're slick, they're deceptive, they're evil, and they are capable of shipwrecking your faith and messing you up. Which is all the more reason why we've got to, as a church, get away from this shallow stuff that's being preached in Christian pulpits today and get back to what God says, preach the word. Because it's God's word that sanctifies us, transforms our minds, and tells us what is true and false. And the more familiar and adept we are in God's Word, the better able we're able to defend ourselves against false teachers, not be blown here and there by every wind of doctrine, and to give a sure and ready answer and the reason for the hope that lies within us. That is how we do it. We're not called to preach just any old truth in church. We're called to preach God's word. You can be orthodox and believe the right things as a pastor. And your job as a pastor is to preach and teach orthodoxy, not be distracted by other stuff. Two plus two equals four and E equals MC squared are both true, but they're not the truths we teach in the pulpit. Instead, we teach God's word. All right, you've been listening to Fighting for the Faith, and we'd like to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means that we depend upon you in order to pay our bills, our salaries, and our airtime fees. So if you would partner with us, we would truly appreciate it and continue to help make this, uh, this radio outreach possible. You can do so by logging on to fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of the donate buttons, or you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. would like to thank you for staying with us through the whole program today. And, uh, of course, tomorrow is coming up quickly. We've got a good program lined up for tomorrow. So you should see the stack of stuff that I've got here. I'm beginning to feel like some kind of a pack rat, or maybe I've got one of those mental disorders where I can't throw anything away. But I I'm working on it anyway. So uh, get ready. Tomorrow's program is going to be good. All right, until then, uh, may God bless you.